This is Content Content, a bi-monthly podcast featuring the people behind the content. I'm Ed Marsh. Today's guest is Sarah Feldman, who has a great career in technical communication, but I know she's also in in a, ma- in a manner a manner of transition. Sarah, is that correct? That is correct. Uh, okay, like so- a lot of people right now, due to COVID. Exactly, exactly. So I want to get to that, you know, and talk about your experience and, you know, what it's like, you know, uh, I know that I think you're looking for jobs. So I want to know what I'm curious about what's going on there first. But, you know, first, let's get to know you a little bit. And why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, you know, how you became a technical communicator and, you know, all the all the things that you've done as part of of part of your career as part of your career. Absolutely. Happy to talk about that. So I am I got a rare uh, unusual start to technical communication, which is that <laughs> I majored in it in undergrad. Oh, no which kidding. you don't hear too often because there just aren't that many programs out there. Yes. In a room of technical communicators at a conferences, I'm sometimes the only one, if not one of a few, who can say that. Uh, I got really lucky. I didn't, I certainly had not heard of technical writing or technical communication before college. I went to a state school back in Virginia. I'm from Maryland originally. And mm. My uh, freshman advisor, I I have a clear memory sitting in her office and she handed me what at the time was the printed, you know, the printed uh, course, course book of all of the descriptions of the classes. And I was describing that I like writing, but I don't want to be a journalist or an author. And I like technology, but I didn't want to be a computer science major. I felt very in between. And she said, well, Here's this thing called technical communication, where you need to be able to write about uh, technology. And I remember reading the description and thinking that it was a major that was made for me. So that was my start. Wow. How lucky. Yes. The crazy thing about this career is that, you know, in doing this podcast is I've seen so many people come at, come at it from so many different ways. Mm-hmm. And I was a journalism major. So, I, I, you know, when I interviewed for my first technical communication job, I'm like, what the hell is technical communication? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting that you know you found your you found your niche quickly, and and, and you know and you and you went with it, and that's made you've made it your career because it's it's very most of the people I've talked to kind of have a, had a roundabout way to getting here. Absolutely, yeah, and I I love hearing those stories too. I think it makes our profession and our peers really interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I just happen to be the anomaly there. And there's there's so few programs, and in fact, the program that I graduated from doesn't exist anymore in its current form and ended up getting folded under the writing and rhetoric program, I believe. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting change. So, so then, okay. So you went to college, you majored mm-hmm. in technical communication. Mm-hmm. Um, and how did you found, I mean, you found your job. I mean, how did you, you know, tell us a little bit about your career after college? Yeah, absolutely. So like I said, I'm from the East coast originally, but I graduated college in 2007 and made the cross country jump out to San Diego where I've actually lived ever since. I didn't know that. Didn't know that at the time. Thought I'd try it for (sighs) a year or two and see what happened, see what would happen. Um, But that worked out and it was 2007, just pre-recession. So I was confident enough or maybe naive enough to move without a plan for a job. (laughs) (laughs) So that kind of unfolded organically once I got here. So I worked for as a proposal coordinator for a technology company. And then I worked for a startup that was unsuccessful, but I learned a lot. And and so that was, I had a few different gigs more short term. And then I landed my first official technical writing job actually um, 
in summer 2008. And that was for a company called ESET. And I spent seven years there working with the knowledge base team. Nice. I think I used they did they did antivirus, right? Yes, they make antivirus software. That's right. Yeah, I think I've used it. I think I used it in the past. Yeah. So uh, one of the things that I find a little bit noteworthy that I really appreciate about my career, that first job at ESET, is that the technical writing team there was quite embedded with the support function rather than some alternatives you hear about sometimes where tech writers are more with product or engineering or sometimes even marketing. So we were just lockstep with support from day one. And that gave me a really strong customer-focused foundation you know, from day one where I really learned the importance of how our work enables both internal and external customers to really be successful and, and managing both of those audiences. Oh, interesting. We're going to have to talk about a lot that. that <laughs> yeah. So that's been uh, a theme then throughout my career as I've, as I've evolved through various positions and now focusing fast forwarded, fast forward to more recent years when I was working for a SaaS company and more focused on content experience, which is a little bit more of like a holistic view of technical content strategy and what I see now really as customer success enablement. So how do you take the technical product information uh, that might be feature focused and transpose it to becoming knowledge that both internal folks and external folks can use to you know, be successful or, or get the outcomes that they're trying to achieve. Huh. Okay. That's interesting because that was one of the things in my notes that I said, you know, I looked at your LinkedIn and you're talking about customer success enablement. So mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you what that is. And that's, a you know, let's talk a little bit about that. So you're saying, I mean, so it sounds to me like it's kind of a transformation from the old kind of, you know, here's this menu and here's what you could do with the things on this menu to, um, to what you say, knowledge that internal and external users can achieve. Is that am I hearing you correctly? Yeah, that they're they're trying to achieve outcomes. And and this is this is the thing that A, I have to admit, is is something that I'm still practicing uh, in my mm-hmm. career focus in terms of how do we shift from this mindset of features and functionality and really transpose it into value-oriented outcomes for the end user. And the reason that it's tricky is because as technical technical communicators, we know that we're always thinking about our end user, but right. we're often very still very much connected to the features and functionality conversation because that's that's our source, right? And that, right, okay. Um, and so I think for a couple of reasons, which I can dive into, we as a as a profession need to go a few extra steps now to really translate that into the true customer perspective. So there's a couple of reasons for that one. um, And I've written about this on LinkedIn a little bit. One of which is that, as we know, technical content has now become relevant in the customer journey far sooner than it used to. We don't have these linear, you know, buying cycles anymore now because all information Mm. is available all the time. And consumers are much more empowered to go self-serve, whether they're researching or, you know, onboarding or, um, you know, maybe upgrading in a product. 
wherever they are, they're able to go grab that knowledge for themselves. And so the technical content that we create has to enable a wider scope of experiences. All right. Give me an example of, of that a wider scope of experience. And I absolutely agree with you that, you know, you're right, that you people are looking at specs and are looking at the technical side, especially because they have access to that research, uh, you know, across any competitor. But, you know, tell me a little bit more about what you're thinking here. Just that we, and okay, so the example you just gave, yes, we can, we can create, we could take our traditional user manuals and make those public. And so users or, or prospective buyers rather could research, you know, company A versus company B and try and figure out who's the best fit. But mm. customers, we could still get sort of stuck in that trap of then just presenting a feature focused knowledge experience and that's not what the customer is thinking about they're thinking about how can mm. they get value like what is the customer's roi on using our product so i talk about this also as customer value realization and it's it's their roi they're spending money or time with a product or a company or a service and they need to have some perceived return on their own investment so how can we talk about our products in a way that makes it really clear how the end user is going to get benefit and value by using it? What are the outcomes they're going to be able to huh. achieve? What will they be able to accomplish as a result of using our product or service? Okay. So yeah, I mean, you're, you're totally talking about the marketing angle there and saying, okay, you know, you know, and, and this is the question, this is an acronym that I use all the time. And I actually just presented at um, the interchange conference. And, you know, my, one of my favorite acronyms in tech com is W I I F M what's mm -hmm. in it for me. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what people, you know, I think you're right where we have to do that instead of that, you know, that, that here's, you know, the, um, the feature focused content, the feature focused, um, style of writing and make it that what's in it for me and think about the user as you said mm -hmm. but i think think about them in a different way maybe or you know position it in a different way yeah yeah it's it's really embracing not just their perspective about what they know or don't know but their context and their context is about so much more than just how they perceive your product or service it's their whole it's everything in their life that we don't even know about that contributes to their context for interacting with us. So that has to do with, you know, when and how they're interacting with us, whether that's over different kinds of devices like smart speakers or IOT devices. Right. Uh, so there's the actual like delivery mechanisms that are different. And then there's just how much more embedded products and services are within folks' lives and intertwined with what they do from day to day. And also, I want to pick up on the fact that you said the word marketing, which I think is so interesting because as a technical communicator, as my background, I know I spent a lot of time thinking, and maybe I wasn't intentionally thinking this, so this is me calling myself out a little bit, thinking <laughs> that technical writers are almost the sort of like counterbalance for marketers in an organization. No, I agree with you. Yeah, <laughs> I agree with you. I used to think this a long time too. Yes, yeah. I agree with you. I think I, I'll admit I fully believed that. And I thought that was an important part of our role. Like yes. marketers, marketers have an important role. Thank goodness they help sell product, which we need. And then here's the tech writers <laughs> to sort of balance out that, you know, that voice. And that's not really how it should be, right? We should be more aligned. And I've found myself in the last five 
ish years, maybe a little bit more, being drawn to actually content marketing focused mm. advice. Um, especially, so I've mentioned this on another podcast recently. Uh, Think with Google is a resource that Google puts out. It's a research and thought leadership that's targeted at marketers. And of course, it's very uh. SEO heavy and search based because it's Google, uh. but they produce a lot of content that's geared towards that audience. And I found myself really finding so many takeaways that we could apply to technical communication by following resources like that. Oh, see, that's interesting. I mean, I agree with you. I always, I always believed that our role as technical communicators was somewhat altruistic, right. which I think I've probably drawn to it because, you know, being a journalist, it's, you know, it's the same thing. I wanted to school, you know, I went to school for journalism. So it's like, okay, I want to be altruistic and I want to have the facts and be the, the, the gatekeeper of facts kind mm -hmm. of thing. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting. But, you know, again, it's, you know, as you said, as you're learning it and going through your career, it's like it is um, – it's another way of just breaking down those silos and saying, okay, yeah, I mean, yes, we're marketing is evil and they're selling a product with, you know, sometimes less than altruistic means, but, you know, we can be a part of that and help, you know, help shape that message, which I think is, is really encouraging for those of us who have always toiled as kind of the, um, the, the, the folks who, you know, just are back in the corner writing, writing tech manuals. Yeah. And I've observed that I think, uh, the 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 voice and the perspective that technical communicators bring to the table is really getting embraced across the organization. So I'm seeing a lot more collaboration uh, through my own career experience and through you know interacting with others where you have your marketing teams bringing in that technical validation through technical writers to make sure that that what the marketing team is putting out there is not fluff or BS, right? It's actually mm -hmm. real value that the customers can get from the product. And that's also driven, of course, by how popular SaaS has become or the subscription economy that it's not just about obtaining customers anymore. Uh, it's real. We know that yeah. it's way more expensive to get a new customer than to keep them. And it's so easy for customers to leave. So we can't get away with, Organizations can't get away with tricking a customer into, you know, becoming a customer because they'll be out the door five minutes later. So it, they have to be, uh, they have to be accurate and be able to back up those statements. Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, and the, back to the content marketing side. I looked. I went to a conference a few years ago on content marketing and realized, no, this is even though some of those names were similar, like content strategy was a big thing there and stuff. I was like, this is not the world for me. But it's interesting. Uh, you know, like you said, it's easy for customers to leave, and that's I think in a lot of cases. But content now, especially in terms of if you're going to a website to buy something, I think content really matters, especially, you know, if it's good background content, like you want to learn something, or you want to pick up a new hobby, especially if you're home or you want to grow something new or whatever, you know, I've got, you know, you go to websites that have great content and explain that stuff to you. I think that's not, you know, I mean, a lot of that can be technical content as well. So you really, I, I think you could differentiate yourself with content is a big is a big plus for for companies especially as so many people are and so many businesses are moving to an online model right now because they don't have a choice mm -hmm. yeah absolutely and and the the more helpful that a company can be via content to help a customer get the that outcome 
the value from the product or service with that technically oriented content, uh, the, you know, the more satisfied the customer is going to be. So let's take a step back. I know we were talked about you, how do you, you were, um, embedded in the support function and in your first role mm-hmm. and uh, you know it's it's interesting because like you said i you know, i've been an, i've never been next to the support team it's always been to the project management team to an extent or some of the developers mm-hmm. so i'm interested how your experience was you know being that close to um to the support folks because i've used them as a resource many times but there's a one company that you know that was um that wanted to hire me in the past or has had expressed interest in the past, but they were required, technical writers were required to man the support desk for six months. And I'm like, that's not, no, that's not, no, that doesn't interest me. So I'm curious to hear what you learned and like what it was like for you, like kind of being on those front lines as opposed to a step or two removed from it. Yeah, great question. And wow, they it's one thing to expect folks to shadow support jobs, but to actually do the job for six months. I mean, I also would balk at that myself, but I can't help but respect it a little bit, right? I mean, what better fair, way yeah. what better way to make sure that your folks really understand what your customers need and what they're going through? Um so okay, so what was it like? It it kind of was a boot camp all the time of seeing real time how the content you created could actually be used. So a busy support support center, they actually had to either walk customers through troubleshooting steps or, you know, configuration changes. And we could see real time what worked and what didn't. So whether the agents were using our material as a reference to walk customers through it or sending those instructions to customers, uh, via links to our knowledge base articles, or we actually had a whole uh, set of email template scripts that we would maintain for the support team to use mm-hmm. uh, for our most okay. com- for most common issues. And it was it was basically that accepting from day one that that customer support perspective and the customer perspective through that voice that they were always right. And we could have written what we thought was the best technical documentation based off of the features, but it was just, it's that constant understanding of how this is really used in the real world. Were you there? Like you said, you were kind of ghosting the team. Are like, were you there when like they get frustrated? Like, you know, were you listening in on calls and say like hearing the frustration on both sides or, I mean, what, you know, what was, what was your kind of role there? It was more about, I mean, yes, some of that for sure, but it was more about uh, partnering with the support team and having them become okay. a part of the content improvement process. So they oh, nice. okay. they knew that that we considered them our part of our customers, right? Our for us, customer support, okay, yeah. customer care, as it was called there, like they were our customers just as much as the company's customers were our customers. So they had a voice in continuously evolving the content. So through real-time feedback mechanisms or when we had bigger initiatives going, bringing them in early on to capture their perspective as part of the requirements um, or goal setting. Uh, so yeah, it was more about partnering with them. Oh, that's cool. Okay. So yeah, so you, it sounds like, yeah, you made, you made them an integral part by being able to write and everything. That's, uh, you know, that's useful. And I'm sure that, you know, sounds like it went well. Yes, I think it did. Nice. <laughs> I look back on it fondly. Hopefully they do too. <laughs> <laughs> 
Probably. So it sounds, I mean, this is a theme throughout your career, this, you know, this customer success enablement and, and, you know, you've moved on to, um, you know, different roles and everything. So, um, you know, tell me a little bit, I guess, you know, where you are now in your career. You know, it's been a few years. Um, you know, I know you're, like I said, you're, you know, unfortunately, or fortunately, you know, depending on how you look at it, you're in a transition phase. So, mm-hmm. you know, what's, um, you know, what are you thinking about now? And what, I mean, what are you looking for? And kind of, what are you seeing out there in terms of, of roles of what the kind of things that we do? Yeah, great question. So the, the tricky thing is that for being, for wanting to be someone to be, into, whew, for wanting to be an effective communicator, here we go. That's foreshadowing for what I'm about to say. Uh, <laughs> the focus that I really enjoy in terms of how I can help in an organization, there is not one or even just a couple job titles. There's no standardized job titles around what it is that I focus on in the organization. It's a very um, cross-functional, internal, external communication role that, so at my previous job, uh, part of the time I was embedded with the customer advocacy team, and then at some point I transitioned over to the product team. And really my job was the same or quite similar with both teams because I functioned as kind of a go-between. So I was the person that would help take the product knowledge, whether it was product planning or go-to-market activities, and help make sure that our customer-facing folks were informed about what was changing with the product and what new features and functionality were and what problems they were intending to solve for and working with them and sometimes customers directly to understand, here's this new feature, now how can we make sure that the customers are using it and that the customers are having successful outcomes? Because it was B2B. So in that case, we wanted our customers to be successful with their own customers. So looking at that whole, (laughs) yeah, that whole cycle. And so uh, my touch where I was before, my role for a while was called content experience manager. And that just was kind of a, a label for looking at content touch points across the customer journey. So collaborating with marketing and sales and services and support and success and product. Yeah. To make sure that we're all, that everyone internally is speaking the same language and understands what's, what's the value proposition? Why is this going to help our customers solve problems and how can we all, you know, it's, it's a lot of knowledge management is a big component of what I do in organizations. Okay. And then obviously technical content strategy to make sure that, that we're mm. delivering that knowledge to customers when and how they need it. So, I mean, it, the, the, the theme I'm hearing with you and pardon me for being reductive, but you sound like you're the glue between a lot of divisions and a lot of, and a lot of teams and companies. Yes. That's one way to put it. Another way that I've been saying it lately is I connect the dots in an organization okay. that sometimes might have little gaps, like, uh, you know, teams sometimes get really close to communicating very well, but there's a couple dots missing and it's, it's okay. knowing it's being technical enough to understand the technical side of things. But I joke about this, that sometimes it's helpful for me to not be too technical because it helps me maintain that customer experience to know how this will actually be perceived by folks who aren't collaborating with engineers every day to understand what's happening. 
Well, yeah, and that's you know one of the things I said too. I, I always say that technical writers are librarians, detectives, and translators. And it sounds like you're, you like filling that role of the translator between you know the technical and like they said the user. You know, making sure that yeah, you know, like you said, connecting the dots and making sure everyone understands the language that everyone's using. Yeah, I love that. I, I love that summary. Yeah, a translator is a great. Great way to say it. So some of the roles out there that, so these are functions that I've done or roles that I'm exploring for my next move would be like technical evangelism is um, one sort of aspect of it. And that's doing a lot of industry engagement, uh, presenting at conferences, which I know you like to do, you know, which is one of my favorite ways to interface with the industry and learn through presenting and through interacting with other presenters and interacting with audiences real time to try and help them, you know, evolve their own practices and doing that in a way that maintains or communicates what your product value proposition is. And then another one is like product marketing as a function is another role that I've seen as that I've contributed to before, which is, um, sometimes embedded with the product team, sometimes embedded with marketing team. And it is a little bit more of a marketing oriented role where their job is to make sure that the product features and functionality are getting communicated out as outcome-based value. Okay. Outcome-based value. That's a good term. I want to write that down. (laughs) (laughs) So that's, you know, that's, you know, that's interesting. And like, I wonder, I mean, you know, let's talk about conferences, you know, everything's virtual now. I, I mean, how is it, I mean, I know this is a role that you're looking for, but it can't be easy to be getting your brand out there or, you know, like I said, you can't, it's hard to evangelize when everyone's not together or, you know, not in a, in a somewhat controlled setting of a conference venue. Yeah, it's that's a great point. And I think we're still so much at the beginning of everyone figuring out exactly how that's going to work going forward. So I know that STC Summit is coming up next month. So I'm excited yes. to be a part of that. I think, I mean, obviously, there's some things to be disappointed about that it's going to be a virtual only huh. format, right? There's going to be yes. things that we miss about the in-person format 100%. But then, you know, there's there's silver linings that come out of it. Like one of which is that uh, I'm sure you can relate when you go to a conference and there's multiple breakout sessions at the same time and you're making tough decisions about which one you're going to go to and you're missing that chance. And now you can just press play an hour later on that session that you missed. So uh, I think we're more folks are going to be able to, glean more takeaways you know as a group Mm. from that conference format yeah what i'm interested in and you know i'm I'm sure this is going to be difficult for any conference at this point but it's you know it's that back channel it's that that conversation between the sessions or you bump into somebody like you know i mean i always advocate this i've always said you know you need to be on social media you need to be on twitter and it just makes it easier to interface with people in person like you know, people that I've known for years, virtually, you meet them in person and it's, you know, oh, hey, it's you, you know, you get right. to meet that person. And I don't know, 
you know, I don't think it's going to be exactly the same, but I'm curious to see how, you know, there's those channels come together because at this point in my career, like, you know, I've, you know, I've done a lot of the stuff. So some of the sessions don't have as much value for me as I, as they used to. So, mm -hmm. you know, that, that in-between session or that networking part of it, that, you know, that in between the sessions or just catching up with somebody or missing a session to just bullshit, you mm -hmm. know, and or even, you know, even, you know, I mean, a lot of conferences have karaoke, which is an evening in itself. So mm -hmm. it's interesting to see, you know, how that all comes together. Um, it's, you know, I, it's interesting to see how this is all going to evolve. Yes, I'm curious as well. I know that they're trying to set up virtual hallways, <laughs> like quite literally. So, oh, cute. Okay, it will be interesting to see how those work. You were, you said you. I know you presented at a conference just last week. Uh, how did that go? Were, were were they able to replicate the in person format? Well, I think they. I, I it was they had an intention of having just a a background chat room, but because of the um, the technology, you know the the. Um, project the screen sharing and the tech that technology that i chose mm -hmm. you could only have one one session open at a time so you mm -hmm. had to be either in one you know you know presentation a or presentation b so there was some conversation there in the chat room but i think you know it was um you know, it was, I, I think it was missed. It was great because, you know, I did the keynote session and there was a lot of conversation afterward. It was very lively, but I don't think it was, I don't think you captured that, you know, whispering or sitting next to a person and taking notes or, you know, like I said, going outside and grabbing a cup of coffee or, yeah. you know, just missing a session and hanging out. It wasn't, you know, that wasn't quite there yet. And I know, I mean, it's, it's really early days. Sure. So, you know, and I'm, I'm going to be at STC summit. I was supposed to receive my associate fellowship. So, oh, congrats. Uh, yeah, I'm doing it virtually, which is, you know, a little bit disappointing, but I'm interested to see how this all comes together, Yeah, you know, especially because, you know, we're, I mean, there's so many different ways to communicate now, whether it's a Slack channel or whatever. So, mm -hmm. and I know that Felice Banner is doing it and she's done a great job with LavaCon virtual stuff. So yeah. I'm sure it'll have a good handle on it, but I'm just curious to see, you know, how this, like I said, how it evolves and how has this become somewhat the new normal-ish if more conferences are going to continue to do this and, and, you know, all, you know, are there, is, I mean, how much of the physical component is going to remain at some point? Yeah. That, uh, yeah. Remains to be seen for sure. And I will be, you won't be able to hear me, but I'll be cheering for you from the audience when you get your <laughs> award. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I'll, I'll, I'll take the virtual kudos. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Good. <laughs> so you said, you know, going back to, you know, your job hunt now, it's like, and um, there's not one standard role title. So this is a thing that, you know, this is a theme for me through this whole damn podcast that I'm mm -hmm. like, there's too many names. There's too many things for people for what we do. But I'm wondering, you know, are you finding that a hindrance? Are you finding that an opportunity? You know, what do you, I mean, and what kind of things are you looking for in a, in a role right now? Oh, great question. Uh, hindrance versus opportunity. I would say both. <laughs> there's, there's <laughs> okay. definitely, there's definitely things about it that make it more challenging. You know, I can't really go on to ZipRecruiter and type in a title and find, you know, a bunch of listings that apply to me or LinkedIn jobs, whatever it may be. So that's the challenge, the hindrance a bit. Uh, the reason that it's, potentially good or how, how it has been so far for me is that it requires a lot more conversation. So the opportunities that I'm exploring right now, very few of them are happening via me finding a job, just a job posting and applying to it and then seeing what happens. Uh, okay. You know, the nature of, of my network connections anywhere I'm doing, I'm doing a lot of like 
networking, reaching out to people individually. People are reaching out to me. I'm posting things on LinkedIn about what I'm interested in. So I'm trying to have more of a conversation. And then through that conversation, the right kinds of opportunities are finding their way to me so far. No no winners yet, but um, things are moving <laughs> in the right direction. And, and I think it's been able – it's contributed to having more – in-depth like conversations about the right role and really actually finding roles that will ultimately be a better fit because it requires sort of some like context and orientation to even have the conversation in the first place. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. So how is, you know, how is your experience with, um, with LinkedIn been? I mean, I, obviously that is the place to go Mm -hmm. for networking. And I, I assume that it's, you know, it sounds like you're putting some content out there. So what's the engagement like for something like that? Like I, you know, thankfully I haven't been in the, in the, you know, in the job hunting mode for quite some time. So I really haven't really had to look very hard with LinkedIn. So I'm Mm -hmm. curious how, you know, especially, you know, putting something out there, like putting some content out there and putting your posts out there, what's that like, what's the engagement like and, and how has it been, for your job search? Yeah, great question. So the engagement can be hit or miss. I will be honest about that. And I think that's worth being honest about because I, if other folks want to try it, I don't want, you shouldn't be discouraged if nine out of 10 things you put out there have little to no engagement, right? That might happen. But if you keep kind of plugging away at it, if you keep following and engaging with people who are talking about things that you're interested in, uh, over time, it reaps rewards. So I've actually, a couple of years ago, I posted an article on LinkedIn about how I had found my previous two jobs via LinkedIn without applying to jobs. And that was because oh, cool. being in the right place at the right time or posting <laughs> the right article about something that I was interested in professionally, got getting found via keywords by a recruiter or a hiring manager. Uh, that happened a couple times for me in the past successfully. Now I have to point out, and I, I put this in my article very clearly, that when those conversions, so to speak, happened, meaning it turning into a job, it was never right away. There was like almost a year, both times, okay. in between the activity that I did and it turning into a job opportunity. So it really is a long game, or it has been for me. And so it's something that I just am kind of always doing on the side anyway. And I approach okay. it from the perspective of, of just wanting to learn. I mean, LinkedIn, there's so many people on there uh, within your industry, within adjacent industries, which I've already talked about. We can learn so much from adjacent disciplines like Mm. content marketing. And so I think it's such a great place to kind of hang out for professional development reasons Hmm. anyway. And if as part of that, you are contributing to conversations and or trying to start your own, over time, you're just going to have this sort of momentum built up that hopefully when you need it to can convert into an opportunity for you. So, I mean, I guess my question is, well, not, I'm I'm asking this badly, but if you're someone new to this, where do you start? You know, I mean, and I I guess, you know, where do you start and have you also used other forms of social media or have you kind of focused solely on LinkedIn to get, to get the word out there and and stuff? Uh, where to start, I would say, well, this is what has worked for me, which is that I see what other people are doing that interests me and I just kind of join in. So uh, okay. I, I don't think that I'm any sort of original innovator in using the LinkedIn platform. There's a lot of 
momentum that you can pick up on and just kind of participate in. And where it's important to be original is not like how you use the platform, but I think it's the voice or the perspective you bring to the subject matter that you're interested in, right? Each of us has different experiences and something of value to add to our peers in our network. And so if you approach it from that perspective, how can I help also contribute to like the learning and knowledge sharing that happens on this platform uh, through the ways that you see other people doing that. And that's whether it's using posts or articles or commenting or using hashtags. I mean, that's the sort of like mechanics of it that I tend to sort of either follow what seems to be successful by other people or try a few things. And eventually you kind of figure out what works. Um, Yeah. So I approach it from that perspective, Twitter for me, I, I use Twitter also uh, for professional reasons, but I haven't had as much success on Twitter personally, but I'll, I can say that I've spent a lot more time and focus on the LinkedIn platform rather than Twitter. So I think you could probably talk to someone else who's maybe had just as much or more success using Twitter in the same way. Okay. That's fair. That's, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, you know, like you said, it's a long game. It's like, you know, you, you know, and especially you know, in terms of networking, like you never know if you plant a seed now or you can make a connection now that could pay off somewhere down the road. And, mm-hmm. you know, I've had the several experiences with that, like, oh, you know, even if someone's requesting like a resource, oh, do you know anybody for X or whatever? You know, it's it's someone I would, you know, I've had so many of those casual experiences like, oh, yeah, I remember when, you know, we were, you know that network really, really is important. And it's, you know, I think that, you know, like you said, it doesn't matter what role that network is in because you never know where the opportunity is going to come from or when Mm -hmm. it's going to come. Yeah. So I think if you just stay focused on, like I said, kind of what interests you and what do you, what conversation do you think you can contribute to and you focus there because it is such a long game, you can't necessarily know that, oh, doing this exact thing right now is going to get me this exact result. You don't necessarily know what the result is going to be, but that if you build a habit of contributing, you know, contributing to a conversation that's meant to improve things from a professional perspective, that eventually that's going to lead to good professional outcomes for you. Yeah. That's nice. So I want to pivot a little bit because, you know, we've been, I think you and I have been discussed back and forth. You having having you on the podcast for a while mm-hmm. and we were introduced by our, our mutual friend, Ben Welk, mm-hmm. who has the introverted leadership podcast. And I know that you were a guest on his podcast. So how does that, does that affect the way that you go about your promotion and your job searching and all of that? Great question. Uh, it, it does in some ways, but uh, it doesn't in ways that I think people assume it does. So let me <laughs> explain. Okay. Um, the way it does affect is that, uh, to repeat a phrase you just said, put yourself out there. When you publish stuff, and I kind of mentioned this before, you know, maybe nine out of 10 times that you put something out there, no one's going to give a shit <laughs> and you have to be prepared. And as an introvert, I think others can relate that it's not as much as maybe you're great at collaborating. It doesn't necessarily, when you, when you start to shift into that territory of like vulnerability and putting your opinions and putting yourself out there instead of your work out there, uh, it can feel, you know, it can feel vulnerable 
And so it's just kind of trusting the process and knowing that as a professional, you have something to contribute to this conversation. You have your experience to share and knowing that there's really nothing bad that can come from putting it out there. The, the worst thing is that you didn't get as many likes as you hoped you might, right? We're all, we all have, <laughs> we all have egos. And so that, you know, plays a part, but knowing that that's not the point anyway, right? The point is to practice knowledge sharing. And so kind of separating, separating it mentally that way, that this isn't, if you think about it as putting yourself out there and suddenly you're in this scary, vulnerable spot, you're going to, mm. you're going to be so scared. You're not going to do anything. And if you think of it more as you're just contributing to the conversation and knowledge sharing with your peers or your network, then, mm. you know, you hope that you would hope that people are doing that for you. So you should do that for them. So that's the way that I think it does play a role. And then where it doesn't, but I, in, in the sense that I often hear people talk about um, introvert, introverts. I think a lot of times people think an introvert is a synonym for being shy or reserved. And in my experience, that's, that's certainly not the type of introvert I am. I've described myself before as an outgoing introvert. Um, mm. Being an introvert, you're not, you don't have a handicap from collaborating with people, right? You're not at a disadvantage. All it means, wow. all it means is that when you need to recharge, or this is my interpretation of what I, I'm not an expert like Ben. Um, my interpretation <laughs> is that when I need to recharge, I need to do that in my own quiet alone time, right? So I have to think about how my energy gets consumed and restored. And so I need to plan ahead. If I'm going to be interacting with a lot of people, I need to plan ahead to have some downtime after. Before a big conference, I kind of, I, I said this term before. Oh, I don't know if I'm going to remember it. I think I said pre-charge. So there's recharge after the fact. <laughs> and then I actually, oh, wow. you know, if I'm, head, if I'm heading to a conference on a Monday or Tuesday, that weekend before, I'm probably not hanging out with my friends as much. Because I know that I'm kind of pre-conserving my energy because I need that quiet downtime to recharge or pre-charge. But there's nothing about that that takes away from my ability to collaborate or interact with people. That is so awesome. I have to say, I, you know, I've, you know, I was always, I've never always been kind of skeptical of the introvert versus extrovert thing. Mm -hmm. um, but then recently I've realized, Hey, you know what? I'm actually more of an introvert than I thought. Mm -hmm. You know, I, like I said, I, you know, obviously, like you said, um, yeah, I, I'm an outgoing introvert. You know, you put yourself out there, you do the, you know, you present, you know, obviously I'm putting myself out there presenting and doing the podcast and things like that. But I realized, you know, like you said, you need a way to recharge. And I just, I didn't realize that that was what I needed until, until fairly recently. So I guess mm -hmm. I'm, you know, I'm an admitted, um, I, I guess I'm a recently realized I'm an introvert, especially because I love this whole being home thing, working home all the time, like you said, we talked mm -hmm. to each other a little bit beforehand and, you know, we're both homebodies. It's like, oh, okay, I can live with this. It's kind of, right. uh, kind of interesting. This suits but, me. <laughs> yes, it suits me, even yeah. though, you know, I like presenting and I like, like you said, putting yourself out there. 
Um, but I guess, you know, like a, a podcast is a controlled experience. So maybe I'm putting myself out there in an introverted way. It's, uh, well, I have a lot to think about now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's great. And I, I certainly, I think it's something to sort of like continue exploring and it's going to change. I think it's going to change throughout our lifetimes. Um, I didn't know I was an introvert until probably well after college. Um, and now when I look back at some of, you know, I was like always around friends in high school and college. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and sometimes I think I didn't realize that maybe I was wearing myself out and <laughs> not getting the kind of recharge time that I needed. So I was actually, it was a surprise discovery for me later in my twenties. Like, wait, what? <laughs> I, I'm so social. How could I be an introvert? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Crazy stuff. So, well, I guess to pivot on that too, you know, you're, you've also been a big member of the SDC San Diego chapter. I know you're a past president and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, ha have you tapped, I mean, ha have you tapped into that network? How is that, is that where, you know, are you using that as part of your network? And, you know, tell us a little bit more about your, your history with the chapter. Oh yeah. So uh, volunteering with the San Diego chapter of STC has been a huge benefit to my career. Um, both like directly and indirectly in terms of my actual jobs, like learning things that I can apply to my job, expanding my network, getting familiar with, you know, adjacent roles that might be good for me to be familiar with. And then of course the people. So I do uh, during this career transition time, I've, I've heard from so many people uh, who've reached out to me. Um, it's almost overwhelming in, in the sense, in terms of how appreciative I am of hearing from oh, nice. folks and so many of those connections I've made through STC San Diego. Awesome. That's very cool. Yeah. So, you know, usually I, you know, I, re I start to wrap things up with a question of, you know, what do you like to do when you're not talking about technical communication, mm -hmm. conscious strategy, you know, role, but you know, let's, let's expand on that a little bit. Like, you know, what you, you know, tell us a little bit more about what you do when you're, you know, when, with your downtime and then maybe, you know, let's talk a little bit about, is there anything that you've done? Um, is there anything you've done or expanded or learned um, since we've been under uh, under quarantine for COVID-19? Yeah, great question. So in my downtime, because I do have a pretty busy career and uh, spend extracurricular time with STC San Diego, in the downtime that I do have, I'm a big fan of relaxing. Uh, I, <laughs> I said this to someone earlier today. I said, I like the word leisure. And I think sometimes there's a bit of pressure to be someone who has a bunch of hobbies and can talk about them all the time. And honestly, I have a lot of respect for those people because I think that they <laughs> lead more interesting lives at time if they can talk about their rock climbing adventures or whatever, um, you know, uh, extracurricular activities they have. But for me, I like to recharge with relaxing downtime. So that's hanging out at home with my loved ones, my dog, long walks, going outside, um, trying new restaurants, uh, lots of Netflixing, um, <laughs> YouTube, YouTube, I find is really um, fun for me too, because I get to relax, but also like learn about other people's lives. It's like, kind of to use your words, like it's the introverts way of like being social. <laughs> um, and working out when I can, when we used to be able to go to the gym, I hope to be able to return to that when I can. So my, that's my downtime. And then I'm close with my family. So um, traveling back to the East Coast a lot to see them when I can, or, you know, we were big fans of uh, Snapchatting each other, pointless things all the time. So <laughs> that's a big source of entertainment. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I've spent so much time watching YouTube. 
I love it. It's like I, you know, I don't, I don't watch that much TV anymore. I, of course, we watch Netflix and we binge, we've been binge watching stuff. But mm-hmm. like my day to day is like, it's like YouTube now, and I just, yeah. like you said, it's so amazing. So many things that you can learn. Um, so yeah, I mean, what are you, you know, what have you been, what have you been watching on YouTube? What have you been learning about? So a couple of my focuses. So if you looked at like my the, what the algorithm has decided that I like, uh, <laughs> the topics are often around like. DIY and home improvement. Um, I'm really interested in people who do sort of the like woodworking projects for their house. I don't have any power tools unless you count like a battery operated drill. We just don't have the, (laughs) we don't have the space for it where we are right now, but I love watching that stuff. And um, because I think watching that creative process, them creating something uh, is really entertaining and maybe someday I'll be able to use that. Right. If I'm, if I move to a spot someday with, a big garage or a workshop, you know, maybe one day I'll make use of it. And then another sort of version of that is I love watching artists on YouTube and I, I am not an artist at all. I I have no aptitude for painting or drawing or anything like that, but I love watching other people create that type of stuff. And there's some great artists on YouTube that I think, I just think it's fun to watch. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I've been watching, I watch a lot of comedians, like stand-up comedians, um, some guys are doing some really, really good stuff. Um, I've followed. I started following a lot of Midwestern comedians. It's very interesting. Oh, um, it's some really crazy stuff. Um, fun stuff out there, and mm-hmm. um, a lot of music video. Well, not music videos per se, but there's this one guy. His name is Rick Beato, B-E-A-T-O, mm-hmm. um, and he does this. He, he's a, a fantastic musician and producer, but he does this series called "What Makes This Song Great." Okay. And it's just like different songs, like, and he just, he breaks it down and like, he has the individual tracks and he like just mutes the other things and like plays along with them. It's just, it's so fascinating and he's so good at it. I could just watch this guy for days. And oh, I that have. sounds really interesting. It's so fun. And that then re- I have a, yeah, no, sorry. If it's just, um, it's so fun to watch. He's got like 80 episodes of this and it just transcends music. It's just amazing. I'm definitely going to look that up. I love that it kind of dissects the, the different elements um, that create create what we yeah. You know. Yeah, and I'm not I'm no I'm not good with like music trivia or like can't <laughs> actually carry a tune singing in the shower. The car doesn't count. Um, but I love the idea of like learning about sort of what makes a song. You know, I say a, yeah. bop, a boppy song. What makes a song something that you kind of want to bop your head to? <laughs> Yeah, I'm a drummer, so I, a lot of the stuff that he talks about is technical is like way over my head. Uh-huh. But even so, just you know, the thing like the, how it was put together and everything—it's just you know, it's so much fun. And like, I'm just finding that I need a lot of stupid stuff, I guess. You yeah. know, like, I'm like, I'm like, I'm watching Match Game from the '70s because mm-hmm. it's like, it's just like a comfort food for me because I grew up in the '70s and I remember watching, you know, Match Game, and now seeing well now being older and seeing all the innu- innuendos and understanding what they mean, it's a very different experience, <laughs> but you know, it's like, sometimes I see you like, okay, I just need to have something mindless at the end of the day to turn my brain off to. Yes. And I think we should all feel very entitled to indulge in that during this very, agreed. Um, yeah. Uncertain time. So, well, I'm glad you're holding up. Well, um, I hope you I hope you and your family are doing well through all this. Um, but Sarah, it's been great to talk to you. I'm glad, you know, Ben introduced us. I know we would talked about it here and there. I finally got the time to put it together. Mm-hmm. So, you know, thanks for your insight. It was, you know, it was great to talk to you, get to know you a little bit better. Can you tell us where we can find you online? 
the best place it would be on LinkedIn. Uh, so the LinkedIn URL slash IN slash Sarah Feldman, S-A-R-A Feldman, F-E-L-D-M-A-N. Uh, or I'm on Twitter at Sarah ContentWise. And feel free, anyone can ping me anytime on either of those channels. And it was so fun talking to you, Ed. Yes, awesome. Thank you. So, you know, good luck with the job search. You know, let us know. You know, keep us up to date with what's happening. I will. Um, Of course, if there's anything I can do, please let me know. But um, until then, go out there and create some great content, everybody.